Welcome to the Cloud Architects Podcast, a podcast about cloud, technology, and the people using it. The Cloud Architects Podcast is sponsored by Kemp Technologies. Choose Kemp to optimize your multi-cloud application deployments and simplify multi-cloud application management. A single pane of glass for application delivery, Kemp provides a 360-degree view of your entire application environment and even third-party ADCs. Download Kemp 360 for free today at kemptechnologies.com. Today we're talking to a very special gentleman who's given us the pleasure of some of his time. But before we go there, my name is Nicholas Blank. I'm Warren. Chris Goosen here. And we are with Brent Allinger. Pleased to be here. Brent, this is a very, very special location for those of us who have any kind of exchange history. Do you mind telling us where we are and what makes it so special? Uh, you are on the Microsoft campus in Redmond, Washington, at the in the building that is the hub of Office 365 Exchange Online. And this is Exchange Central, or Exchange Online Central. Both. Yeah. So today, we want to ask you a whole bunch of questions about Exchange. But before we go to Exchange, Let's frame the discussion and have you tell us what do you do at Microsoft and why you even qualify to answer these questions. Okay. Well, uh, I'm responsible for shipping Exchange Server on-premises releases. Uh, I am the, in charge of servicing the product as well as new versions of the product. Uh, that's my primary responsibility, responsibility right now. Uh, but I've also been a part of the Office 365 Exchange team since the days of Live at EDU. I actually was on the, the team that developed the first version of our deployment technology and the centralized monitoring that became the Exchange Online Service. So I actually learned this from a PowerPoint presentation. I don't know if you guys know that Exchange Online started under a desk. Wow. And it, it was an engineer's desk. And the slideway was actually, it, it was really funny. So it was a server that was under a desk here somewhere. And it was actually the, the engineer was named as well, mm -hmm. if I remember in, in the slide deck. And this is public information, but I don't remember that piece. And that little server became thousands and thousands of but servers. But on the road to 1,000, uh, I actually managed the lab where we brought in the first four racks of servers that we used to do all of our deployment testing yeah. uh, and prove out the initial hardware selection yes. for the, the, the data center servers. Uh, and it was interesting because uh, that moved with us from building to building because at that time we still had our labs in the building. And so that was the foundation. Before we got to the thousands of servers, yes. we, you know, we had 64 servers in four racks uh, that were the, the service at that point. No, no user load, just development. And to this day, we'll find in the address spaces Exchange Labs. Yes, you will. So give us a little bit of the history. We started with that single server, we had that rack, and then it grew to V1. And it was it was um, Business Productivity Online Suite, and it wasn't sexy. But before that, uh, it was no, live it at was, EDU. It was, B, it was yes. BPOS before it was live at EDU, yeah. right? So BPOS uh, was the 2007 era, yeah. where that was our first foray into uh, running Exchange for a select set of customers. Uh, and it was largely the, ex the same shrink wrap product that we sold to customers. Yeah. Uh, with support from the engineering team to develop additional management and monitoring. Uh, but the core product was its, itself the same. Um, from there, we went into the Live at EDU era, which was uh, the same time as Exchange 2010 was coming out. 
Uh, and it's interesting because at that point, the engineering team was still fairly divided. They were an on-premises product. Yeah. And there was this data center team off on the side, which I was a member of. Yeah. And they were all laughing at us because they thought it would never, ever develop into anything. Well, we showed them. Um, 155 <laughs> million users later. Yeah, exactly. And, and several hundred thousand servers. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> but we digress. Uh, so, and at that point, that was where we really started making the investments to to change the what was a shrink wrap product into a services based product. Yeah. And so you started. Uh, that was when the uh, introduction of Org ID as the authentication principle for Exchange came into being. That all happened very very quickly. Um, if if you think back to at that time, we were using waterfall models of, of engineering. Uh, and so at the M1 milestone phase, we had actually, actually already turned the authentication stack upside down to support um, Passport and, and Org ID at that point. It was, and they were exciting times. Yeah. Um, and so that through 2010 cycle, uh, we continued to make the investments. But the products were still really the same. It was the same code base. Uh, we started introducing new setup phases for the service that so that we could do data center specific stuff. Um, I was actually in the setup team at that point. Uh, and so that was um, the level of investment. And then when we got to 2013, that was when we started to really say, okay, we're going to engineer for the cloud primarily. Mm -hmm. right? And so you started to see a shift in the focus of the teams. The resourcing was heavily, heavily skewed to supporting the service and building features for the service, but we still had the on-premises product. And that was the same time that we decided to ship, continue shipping the same version, but you started hearing us talk about things that had been developed for the cloud yes. and, and developed at the scale of the cloud, yes. um, but that you were still able to take advantage of mm. in the on-prem product. Uh, fast forward to 2016, we're starting to get into V2 of the service where we're really starting to say, wait a minute, we, we have specific needs and specific features that we're gonna develop just for the cloud, um, but the we, we still ship the on-premises product from the same code base, but you started to see differences in features and, and the experiences and things that were occurring. Uh, and then from there, uh, last fall, uh, we released Exchange Server 2019, where we have now officially severed the relationship between those two products, and Exchange Server 2019 is a code base that is developed separate from what's running in Office 365. Still based on the same foundation of, of what was running there, so you see things like MCDB, mm -hmm. which was originally developed for the cloud, um, delivered in Exchange Server 2019. Um, but now they are officially two different products. Okay. One of the things I think that differentiates what we'll do on-premises and what you do in the service is the lifetime of a server in the service. Do you mind just telling the folks about that? Yeah, uh, it's sh there are two things that, that surprise people about O365. First of all, there is no operations and support team that runs a service. It's the developers who write the code that actually are in charge of being on call when things go bump in the night. Uh, we have a very elaborate paging system and on-call rotation where if your code misbehaves, you get a call from Rajesh Jha's voice, waking you up in the <laughs> middle of the night, saying this is Rajesh Jha from the O365 service. True story. Um, and your spouse or partner hears that once or twice, and then immediately every phone call in the middle of the night is just handed to you. <laughs> um, so there's that aspect of it. But the cadence at which we run also astounds people. 
Um, the, the typical life cycle of a server in the service is one week. We deploy, uh, we have a continuous deployment uh, mechanism that proceeds through ring, what we call rings of validation, whereby um, we progressively introduce new versions of the product, uh, and that as they prove out their readiness, they advance to the next ring. And the life cycle of that ring is about a week. Uh, so any given time, we're actively deploying four to five versions of Exchange in the service at the same time, depending on which ring. But the natural progression is it goes to the next ring in the following week. And it's a flatten and rebuild of the server. Right? So we actually take it down to bare metal, reinstall the OS, reinstall Exchange, uh, and any other apps that, that need to be installed. That's uh, crazy. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> and, and it gets worse from uh, and please correct me my understanding is that the debugging cycle is so short that when you get above a certain threshold you just blow it away and then you just re-image it or you just rebuild it. It, it very much so yeah we we have the ability to control um the capacity that is in service at any given time mm -hmm. so we can actually take servers in and out of service at at, at will um, we can also control the introduction of code and, and scoping features to individual servers uh, through our flighting mechanisms. So we have, a, we run at massive scale, but we have granular control. But the awesome thing is that you're using your own technology to do that. Yes. Right? I mean, the stuff that's available to everybody else, I mean, in some cases, like so Azure DevOps and, I mean, which was originally VSTS and those kinds of things, they do all of that stuff like in-house. Yep. Yeah, DevOps is the, is the tool that we use to manage code, yeah. uh, manage the, the bug lifecycle, uh, development lifecycle. Approvals. Uh, approvals, right. Um, we've also developed our own uh, deployment technology you know, based on uh, C Sharp and PowerShell. And it's, it's all managed. It, 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 any developer in the building has the ability and the responsibility to manage the introduction of their code into the service, right? They are accountable for it. Uh, it's it's a highly distributed, um, highly empowered environment where there is accountability within the within your engineering team. Because at the end of the day, if it goes bump, you're the one that's going to get called. Yes. Right. So. That's so cool. I mean, if you have to take it back to what was involved in installing an Exchange 2003 yeah. server, along with the Active Directory that came with it and all those lovely things, which leads me to my next question, and it's the question that I ask everybody that we interview in Exchange, and. What was your favorite version of Exchange? Um, wow. <laughs> See, Warren likes to, to, uh, to, to put people on the spot. And that's it's kind of no, like them pick. I know, I know the answer. <laughs> Picking yeah. the one of their favorite kids, <laughs> I See, guess. See, I'm not allowed to ask you what you do on the weekends, but I can ask you that. <laughs> I would honestly have to say Exchange Server 2003 is my favorite yes. version. Yes. Wow. It's in the front running, let's, ladies let's, and gentlemen. Well, Jeff Mieliff had a very interesting response to that. It was also 2003. But let's ask you why. Um, I think it's the version that I deployed into the most customer environments, right, mm -hmm. and had the, the strongest prints. And I would say that uh, it had the right balance of features, stability, mm -hmm. and functionality. If you look at Exchange since then, we have added so much to it that it's kind of... Um, it's, it's much more than just a, a mail server, right? Uh, Exchange 2003 was the height of it being a really rock-solid mail server. We'd gotten through the, the bump of, of the migration to Active Directory. Yeah. Um, 
pretty much everybody in the world at that point was using SMTP. Yes. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it was just a really clean implementation and a joy to work on. Now, you know, it, we still had CDO and, and other things in there that we've said goodbye to that were, were good decisions. Um, but it's, it didn't take forever to install. <laughs> uh, and it was just it a rock. It ran forever. It ran forever. It was just and a rock-solid experience. It still yeah. is running today. Yes. Mm. And that's exactly well, what we Jeff... Well, we hope not because I'm not sending out any fixes for it. Well, <laughs> well, that's exactly what Jeff said. Is Jeff said in the interview that you guys made it too well. Yes. So what happened was the Exchange uh, 2007 adoption wasn't as high because people just... They were like, hey, it's it ain't broke. Let's don't fix it. It took a long time to get customers off 2003. Yeah. And I, I would say, arguably, though, that yeah. same, th there's a case to be made about Exchange 2010 and that as well, right? Yeah. Where it is too solid and too stable. And folks are kind of, you know, we were having to drag folks off this this, this platform. Yeah, and people we're miss the management panel, you know, MMC. 2010 SP2. No. Solid. It, SP2 was solid, but SP3 is a better place to be. Agreed, agreed. But yeah. I would argue that the 2010 that we know and love started with SP2. Yeah. And, and that was also, I mean, we talked about this yesterday. We we, we did a um, a bit of a history on the, the hybrid configuration wizard. And 2010 SP2 is when we first saw yes, that, yes. right? So for many of us and, and those of us that have come from a messaging and exchange background have eventually transi transitioned into online services and, and Office 365, that was the gateway drug, right, yeah. yes. for us back then. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah. You, but your point is valid. You know, we, we're concerned about 2010, right? You know, 2010 yeah. does reach end of support in January 14th of 2020. Uh, it's and not, long. Not, long, not long at all, eh? No, it's not long at all. And there are still mm -hmm. a good number of customers that are on it and, and very happy with it. Um, so it is going to be a, an, an interesting moment. So, Brent, can you, can you help us out and help us understand when you say end of support, what does that mean? And for the folks of our, at home or, or that are listening that are hearing this, what exactly does that entail? What does that mean? Correct. Uh, so end of support means there is the end of the commitment from Microsoft to provide security updates uh, to the product, uh, time zone updates mm -hmm. to the product, right? Things that you take for granted now to keep you secure and functioning. Uh, you still have the ability to call support, but you're basically going to get a redirect to a public KB article at that point. Okay. There is no longer a commitment from the engineering group to provide fixes. And that's the, the main uh, concern with customers because while they may think that they're secure and they, they have a, a robust environment and well-managed, the reality is you know, that code was developed 12 years ago. Yes. And the, the landscape that we operate in today is very, very different. You know, and, and as, as recently as February, when we had uh, a fairly major security event exchange, which thankfully are rare, um, it impacted all versions. And it, it was based upon decisions that were made in the code 11 years ago, right? And, and, and when we did the security risk assessment then, they, they were perfectly reasonable choices to make, yes. but not in today's environment. And so that's our major concern. With, with 2010 is, is understanding that customers really need to take this security question into consideration and, and do the right thing for their organization and mm -hmm. get off of it as much as we love it. Yeah, yep. and I think I think that the, the important lesson there too is that customers don't always understand the repercussions of these decisions, right? So if we look at, let's go back, when was WannaCry? A couple of years ago now? Mm. You know, that came in through unpatched versions of Office, right? Yes. Now, completely not related to what we're talking about here, but that caused a lot of organizations a lot of angst and cost them a lot of money to get yeah. some of that stuff fixed. 
So, so it, it is a big deal when you can't get updates um, and and security fixes and things like that for a product. It's it's a very big deal. And so that's why we're trying to raise awareness, make certain that customers understand that end of support means end of support, and we're serious about it. We have many, many alternatives. You can go straight to Office 365 from 2010. It's a fairly seamless experience. Um, but if you're not ready for the cloud, we'd rather you get on a more current version of Exchange Server on-premises. 2016 is a great place to land for 2010 customers because it's a seamless migration. Um, the coexistence of the two versions is second to none, right? Because you don't have to re-architect namespaces. That's right. It's a very smooth and easy transition. That's that's intentional. Um, so we think that's a great place for customers to move to while they still evaluate the cloud. And you've made it even easier on 2010 to do a quick migration to hybrid because you just released, what did we hear yesterday? Uh, Greg was talking about uh, support for server 2012R2. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. On Exchange Server 2010. So yes. you can run the, the hybrid agent on uh, yes. 2012 R2 with 2010. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the commitment is And there's a patch specifically there. just for that. There's a CU just for that. There's yes. an RU specifically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, um, the commitment is there from your side in order to get customers to a better place. Absolutely. We, we like to be very customer proactive and customer friendly mm -hmm. in everything we do. You know, um, we get a bad name sometimes because people say, oh, you're just trying to push us forward. You just yeah. want to sell us more. No, it's we're not in it for that. We're, we want to make certain that you're successful with our products. Mm -hmm. right? And so we know, you know where the sweet spots are. We know where you're going to get the best experience. right? If you're running 2010 on 2008 R2, um, it was... Uh, a significant level of effort to get you to TLS 1.2, and everybody should be running TLS 1.2 at this point, right? That took um, commitment from Windows to add support in the OS. We had to make some changes in Exchange, uh, and it was painful. Mm. But if you look at newer versions, 2016, 2019, that's we're talking about TLS 1.3, yes. right? As the as the new standard. So and 2008R2's end of service soon too. Uh, yes, it reaches end of support at the same time as Exchange 2010 <coughs> in mm -hmm. January of 2020. For sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, there are, Windows does have some options for customers who are running on 2008 R2 where you can continue to get security updates, uh, but Exchange is not participating in that program, so people should be aware of that. Mm. Um, and one of the big caveats there is that Exchange shouldn't be hosted in Azure to prolong its lifespan. Uh, that would not be our preference, no. Yeah, yeah. So we know that the the SQL folks have got some some uh, programs around that. <coughs> Excuse me to extend the life span of supportability for SQL specifically, so you can put into Azure. But Exchange has always been a tin friendly product, not a hosted friendly product. Your words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. So That's a true statement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and uh, I would be happy to defend that purely on the cost of uh, uh, Exchange on tin versus Exchange on just about any hoster's platform. Yeah, well, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's telling that Office 365 runs on bare metal. Yeah. Right, it's not virtualized. We leverage virtualization in some of our telemetry and monitoring, and it's, it's a great use for that. Um, so you'll find Azure services supporting the Office 365 service, mm -hmm. but the actual servers themselves are, are physically hosted on bare metal. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that goes back to, um, we've always been very, uh, I guess supportive of the the bare metal hosting of Exchange when back when we were doing Exchange on premises. I can't remember the last time I actually <laughs> did that or deployed something a, a brand new net new Exchange environment. Um, 
uh, on premises, but uh, certainly uh, the, to me, that's always been a massive preference, right? Is and and like you said, Nick, very easy to justify and defend because um, the gains there there are very few gains from from running exchange on a especially a hypervisor level. Well, to a sand customer, I would say, can I save you a million dollars? And if that's not interesting, well, then you, let's keep your sand and the performance you may get out of that. Or would you like a performance guarantee? And how's about that million dollars back? Yep, money talks. And and that's a direct benefit from the service, right? Because that's yeah. how we engineered and built the service. Yes. You know, you you are going to get the benefit of all of the enhancements we made in Jet, on uh, memory management, and just scaling up on memory and cores. So, what does it mean for you? Exchange has become a, or it used to be the reason to go to cloud, and some of that was around commoditization of mail. But now we're seeing Exchange has got much of a lesser focus because it just works. And it partly it does that because – go on. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say um, it is uh, so reliable that it doesn't get the glamour that a lot of the other products do. But Exchange is also used as the underpinning of other products. And we don't even call it Exchange internally here. This building that you're we're sitting in – we actually all refer to it as substrate. It is the substrate for Office 365. It is the foundation th upon which other services rely. So if you look at Teams, there's an exchange aspect of where that data is being stored, right? Well, we don't call it exchange. It's the substrate. Why would they choose exchange and not SQL or anything else? Well, um, it turns out we did actually go down a, a fairly lengthy path with SQL at one point. Um, prior to releasing Exchange Server 2013, uh, there was an effort to uh, run. We, with 2007, we changed to managed code from mm -hmm. unmanaged code, um, but we hadn't touched the store in 2007. Uh, we knew that it was going to be a multi-year effort, uh, so there was an effort when we were transitioning the, to the managed code store uh, to try putting it on SQL. And so we spent uh, three years uh, where there was a, a dual support for Jet and SQL in the store itself, uh, and. It was uh, at the end of that cycle, uh, it was jointly determined by SQL and Exchange that the database characteristics of an Exchange server were better suited to the JET database model than they were to SQL. And we jointly agreed to abandon that effort yeah. and continued the managed code uh, implementation on top of JET, uh, which we ultimately delivered in 2013. Okay. And it's still there today. So why would teams choose Exchange as opposed to anything else? Well, I think it, it's because uh, we already, if you look at the data structures, because they don't just use Exchange right? yeah. or Substrate. They use SharePoint as well and, and, and other services in, in O365. But if you look at some of the functionality that's being offered in Teams, like calendaring and, and those types of things, there's already a natural repository in Exchange for that type of data. Yeah, it so makes we no all sense to rewrite it again. We already understand mm -hmm. it. And a compliance mechanism. And a compliance mechanism, yes. Sure. So we, we use and assemble the parts in, in a way that makes sense. Okay. So let us ask you in the world, and you mentioned you, that you moved away from a world of waterfall to mm -hmm. continuous delivery. What does that actually look like on a Monday morning when you're pushing code, you're testing code, deploying code, and n new feature pops out, right? So what does that actually look like when you guys engineer this kind of thing? 
Um, that's a fair question. Uh, first, I would say that Monday doesn't look any different from Tuesday or Wednesday. <laughs> they all look the same. Mm. Uh, but it's it's a highly collaborative, a very um, agile environment where there is uh, a focus on scoping the future just like you would, would have normally. But more importantly, we, we evaluate uh, and put the controls in place to make certain that we control the introduction of that and we get the telemetry mm-hmm. uh, from that feature. And that really turns into what drives our decision and how we move forward. So, you know, it's not uncommon for something to, to light up in ring zero, which we call service dog food. Uh, and it takes weeks or months to get to, to worldwide. That same code is running in worldwide, but it's just not turned on. Oh. So that's been the big switch. You know, it, Feature it, flags. Yes, exactly. We're we're not all the code is the same in in, in the version. It's just a matter of whether it's active and, and deemed ready for use. So what's really changed is there's less dependence on a test cycle and a test team to go through and actually run simulations and scenarios and do that type of validation of it, as opposed to drawing the telemetry from the service on how it's behaving. And of course, everybody in the buildings here, we're all in, in service dog food, so we get those features right away. We get to, to find out what the experiences are mm-hmm. uh, and the chance to tune them um, before they, they reach later rings. But it's it's um, a much more collaborative, a much f- faster paced uh, return because in actually in, in ring zero, which is service dog food, we deploy multiple builds of exchange a day there. Right. Wow. So we, we our goal is three builds a day into that environment. So uh, because that's the primary feedback mechanism for the development team, right? There, we have the ability to go off and build off uh, service topologies where you can actually you know do debugging and uh, because debugging in the service turns out is very hard. Yes. Um, but we have local workstations that are virtualized that you can build that out and do that. But the actual the, the data that matters is you know the feedback from users, right? So you get user voice telling you what they like about the feature, but you get the telemetry on how it's behaving and, and if people are even using it, right? Because it's one thing to, to build you know five widgets that nobody uses, and if you don't know they're not using it, you're just putting unnecessary code in there. But if you find something that people really gravitate to and your usage numbers spike you know, on a Monday morning, you know you're onto something, and so that helps you refocus mm. with the investments you're going to be making in the product. Is there it's a very different world? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and 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 we acknowledge that. Is there anything new under the sun for email in an online world? Was everything of interest been done when we're talking about user features? Are we developing for other scenarios like Substrate as a primary development focus? Um. <laughs> Redacted. <laughs> no. Redacted. I'll try. Uh, we recognize that email itself as, as a platform is, is pretty stable. Yeah. Right? There's not a lot to do there. I mean, there, there, are th- there are things we're pursuing. It's more about how you apply the use of that email in your day-to-day life mm-hmm. and how you interact with others and how it enables you to do new and exciting things other than you know sit and compose an email in Outlook and click send. Yes. And so the substrate is seen as the the nuggets of of greatness that organizations can derive. If you look at the intellectual capital that's tied up in a, a messaging platform, it's pretty substantial. And so the goal of substrate is to make it easier for organizations to tap that intellectual capital that already exists. And so it gives us the opportunity to, to build services 
on top of that data that may not necessarily be considered ex classic exchange, but they, they represent um, a scenario or a use case that provides value to that user that just happens to be coming from the email data. And mm -hmm. so the goal of Substrate is to become that foundation and to allow other services to be built on top of it uh, other than Outlook right? okay. or, or Outlook Mobile. Okay. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's telling of the 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 world we live in today, right? Because I think I think we're we're seeing now that we have different generations of people in the workforce. They all work differently as well, yep. right? You know, some of us oldies like like our email, and we you want to live on port twenty five well, all they day. Say eighty percent of a company's intellectual property is, is in, been in an email somewhere. Yeah, yes. and yeah. That, and so uh, uh, I think that's what what the point I was trying to make is it's really telling that one we're looking to derive that value out of the data that's already there, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But two, it just means options too now, right? So f some folks who are maybe coming into the workforce, uh, younger folks who may not be wanting to use email as their primary mechanism for communication can still derive value out of the historical information that is in there. Yeah, and, and we see that every day here, right in the, in the O365 team. You know, um, it's interesting, you, you, you go through generations of developers who come through the doors and, and I feel like I'm seeing the third wave now. I'm feeling old. How long uh, have you been at Microsoft? 18 years. Wow. Okay, my next question's ready. Okay. <laughs> let's um, talk about those young developers first. Yeah, let's talk about, so we've really had to transform our own engineering systems to meet their expectations and their needs, right? So if you- th Their needs. Well, they're, uh, yes, I'll say their needs because it, it actually is a metric that we we measure. Yeah. Um, in our annual WHI survey, is how happy are you with your your, your development tools and oh. your experience? So there is, and we're accountable up to our VP for that. Yeah. So there is a legitimate effort to make certain that developers are excited about coming to work every day in Office 365. That's wonderful. And have the tools that they need to make them be successful. Well, but it, it looks very different than it, how it looked, you know, 18 years ago. Yes. But is it visual? Like, is is Exchange written in Visual Studio? I mean, like, because when you think about it, as same as Azure DevOps, you use your own tooling there mm -hmm. that you wrote. And then obviously the Visual Studio Team Services or DevOps team uses DevOps to deploy DevOps, sure. But then obviously this this whole chicken and egg thing, do you get to a point where you're like, okay, well, Microsoft write Visual Studio as well. So what is Visual Studio written in? Is Visual Studio written in Visual Studio? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it is. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and the answer to your original question is yes, we use Visual Studio, but we don't force developers. They can use the tool of their choice as long as they can get yeah. into the compliance and the pre-check and validation. For sure. Right. You know, so not every there's no mandate that says everybody must have Visual Studio on sure. your machine, but you must use DevOps and you must go through pre-check and validation and your code will not be allowed into the build until you've completed that. For sure. And the reality is most people use Visual Studio. <laughs> That's a great product. I mean, Visual Studio code is, I mean. Oh, it's gorgeous. When, when are they bringing out a Visual Studio code for iOS? Why would you need it though? Before uh, we scroll down, you had your next <laughs> question. All oh, right, okay, fine. Um, yes, next question. Who was your favorite CEO? And uh, just to preface Oh, I can't, that, I can't say. Yes, you can, because everyone has had uh, an answer to that. No, look, okay, so you don't actually have to pick it, but I mean, it's, it's very obvious that each CEO ran Microsoft a specific way, and it doesn't necessarily have to be favoritism. Um, it has to be how you enjoy 
Uh, I was going to say, I'll answer that question a little differently. Yeah. E every CEO has brought their own style to the exactly. company. Yeah. And it has been interesting to see the transformation over those years reflected in the different styles. Um, I think it's it's a very exciting time right now for uh, the company because you know, we're wildly successful with Office 365 and, and Azure. Um, we have people who genuinely want to come to work. We're making investments in um, equality across men and women, and you know those barriers are coming down. Uh, as we're walking through the halls, I hope you're noticing you're seeing a lot more women in the hallways. Yes, yes. Uh, which is because they, they do bring uh, a very different perspective than when you have you know the same person sitting side by side with the same yeah. uh, biases. Uh, so that's exciting. Um, but at the same time, you know, some of the change is hard. I, I'm a classic Microsoft person. Um, people make fun of me because I still use Windows Phone. Um, it's true. It was buzzing <laughs> earlier. Uh, I'm still a company man, and so it's been hard to see. I'm, I'm not a dinosaur by any stretch of imagination. I, I am current on technology, but uh, it's it's been hard for me to see a move away from the day when you everything you did revolved around some Microsoft product or um, some solution that we were developing. It's it's very different. It, it's it's empowering to be where we are today and to see people embracing us on multiple platforms. But as a long-term Microsoft, it's an adjustment. Mm. Just like the adjustment that all the developers went through when they, they came out of college and they thought they were gonna sit in a cubicle or an office and write code every day and that, yes. that's all they were gonna do. And then all of a sudden, you're responsible for that code running in the service and you're gonna be on call. A lot of transformation. So it's it's, mm. I can't say that any one is better than the other, it's just, Different. changing your attitude and and adapting to that change and if you don't adapt then there are other places that you can be successful as well mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we, is probably one of the best answers to be honest it, it is a very good answer yes, yes. so w what i find really interesting though is well and, and we've talked about this on the show before is that we i think we're seeing a workforce now uh where people are not going to wait around for organizations to adopt the technology, right? Oh, very I, real. You know, I think I think it, it, it is. We're at a point now where um, during interviews, job interviews, you know, what is the technology stack that you use, and how do how do we collaborate is is a very important question for a candidate to be asking. And so, yep. you know, to me, it's very interesting when you when you when you guys are saying that, uh, or when you're saying that here at Microsoft, that's something that you guys think about as well, right? For you for your developers, yep. because when people are excited to come to work and um, and do their job and do the thing that they do, that shines through in the product, and 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 so it's great to see it from both sides. I, I guess. Yeah. No. It, you, very very much so. Um, it would years ago we would have never considered not hosting our own source code on our own servers. And it would floor most people to know that Office 365 is now developing out of Git. The exchange source code that we run is actually in a Git repository. Wow. That's a transformation. That's awesome. And it's it's great validation for Git. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I bought GitHub. <laughs> yes, and well, for a reason. Yeah. For a reason. <clears throat> so we, we're coming up towards the top of the show and before we let you go, what is it that you would like to plug in terms of Twitter, URLs, anything that you'd like to be found by or just anything that you'd like to mention for our listeners? Um, Do you write anything? Had me at hello. I, I am a primary contributor on you had me at Elo. Yeah. 
Um, so that's the best way to get hold of me. Uh, that's I'm I'm not a big Twitter guy, I'm not a big Facebook guy, um, but if you respond and ask a question on the Ela blog, I'll I have make seen that. Response. I do. I have seen that, and um, honestly, from ten years ago to where we are now, it's amazing how responsive Microsoft is mm. as an organization mm. on documentation mm. on on blogs. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and. Something that most people may not be aware of either. We also actually transitioned all of our online documentation to Git. So if you go to the docs.microsoft.com yes. interface, that's, right. that's now all hosted on Git as well. Mm -hmm. so yes, uh, I love it because uh, you know I, I'm a little uh, OCD when it comes to uh, specifically um, the term on-premise versus on-premises. So whenever <laughs> I read <laughs> you and Ross Smith, <laughs> <laughs> whenever I'm reading documentation and I come across on-premise. Uh, I always have a you know pull request and fix it <laughs> in Git <laughs> because it drives me crazy. So, but but now I have the you know the tools are there for me to be able to make that you know make those changes. So it's also, or at least suggest the changes. Yeah, right? oh, that's cool. <laughs> yes. Very cool. So thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thank you for showing us it around. A pleasure to be here. Hey everyone, before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud Arc.